This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. <laughs> These people are just in out of the rain, basically, I think so. isn't it? I know. Yeah. It's somewhere dry. Good. Um, good evening, everyone. Delightful to see you all here in Out of the Rain. <laughs> On such a mis- it's so miserable this weekend. Yeah. Absolutely filthy. Gives us something to talk about, I suppose, though, <laughs> which is good. Um, my name's Peggy, and I'm only delighted to be here today with uh, Kevin Barry, whose work I have uh, read and admired for a, for a very long while. Um, he's the author of Beetlebone and City of Bohan, uh, Story Collections, Dark Lies the Island, and There Are Little Kingdoms. I'll need to take a little quick in-breath to mention some of the prizes that his work has uh, garnered, which include the Impact Dublin Literary Award, the Goldsmiths Prize, the Sunday Times EFG Short Story Prize, and the Lannan Foundation Literary Award. Uh, his stories and essays have appeared all over the place in the New Yorker, Granta, among other other places. And he also works uh, from home in Sligo. Uh, from home in Sligo. That sounded a bit chatchu. Um, <laughs> as a playwright and a Sligo. Sligo. Uh, as a as a playwright and a screenwriter as well. But in this, and I'd like you to maybe indulge us in a wee cheer because it's um, Booker Longlisted. Did you know? Maybe a little. Uh, in his uh, Booker Longlisted masterpiece uh, about two <laughs> ageing gangsters uh, who are reminiscing about their misadventures while waiting for this eponymous uh, boat to arrive, hopefully bearing a girl that sort of binds them both together. I'm just going to ask you, oh, I'll quote, actually, I'll quote from Max Porter in a book that's full of amb- ambiguities. I love that on the cover here, Max Porter says, a true wonder. And I wonder if he means the book or yourself, Kevin. It's hard. I, we'll I we'll say know. both. Yeah. But please uh, join me in giving Kevin a really warm welcome again. So the format, we're going to ha- hear some readings, we're going to hear, we're going to have a little conversation. We'd love it very much, obviously, if you would get thinking now with your own questions and comments and we'll, we'll be bringing you in as well. Um, but before we have the first reading, Kevin, um, could you just give us a bit of an origin story around yeah. this particular book? Um, I think exactly 20 years ago, I, w- I was still living in, in Cork City in, in Ireland and um, the weather is like this a lot of the time in Cork and... Um, Every kind of January, February, I, I, I used to feel my creativity going very low. And I started to realise that Spain was cheap in January and February to go to. And I started to go every kind of January, February for a few weeks or a few days, if that's what I could afford, or sometimes even for a couple of months. And I've, I've kept doing it, you know, for 20 years. And I love Spain. I find it a really vivacious country. And also it has something really kind of old and ancient on its atmosphere, I think. And... For about the last five or six years, I was kind of saying to myself, OK, where's the Spain book? How am I going to write my Spain novel? And I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out how, how, how I would do it. Until one day I had the blinding flash of inspiration. I thought, what if I just put two fellas from Cork City in Spain? <laughs> I'd be away in a hack. And they're called, they're called Morris and Charlie. And they're, they're two kind of fading gangster figures. Their, their profession back in the day was importing boatloads of cannabis resin from Morocco to the west of Ireland. But that trade has ended because the little fuckers are growing it in polytunnels now in the west of Ireland. Um, so they're kind of they're washed up. And to, to, add, to, to add complications, one of their daughters, Dilly, has been missing. 
Um, they believe she may be about to pass through the port of Algeciras on the way to Tangier. Uh, I'm just going to read the first couple of pages just to give a flavour of the way the book begins. Um, chapter one is titled The Girls and the Dogs at the port of Algeciras in October 2018. Would you say there's any end in sight, Charlie? I'd say you nearly have an answer to that question already, Morris. Two Irishmen, sombre in the dank light of the terminal, make gestures of long sufferance and woe. They are born to such gestures and offer them easily. It is night in the old Spanish port of Algeciras. Oh, and this is as awful a place as you could muster. You'd want the eyes sideways in your head. The ferry terminal has a haunted air, a sinister feeling. It reeks of tired bodies and dread. There are scraps of frayed posters, the missing. There are customs announcements, the narco-trafficante. A blind man roils in night sweat and clicks his teeth to sell lottery tickets like a fat, rattling serpent. He's doing nothing for the place. The Irishman, look out, blithely, at the faces that pass by in a blur of the seven distractions. Love... Grief, pain, sentimentality, avarice, lust, want of debt. Above them, a cafe bar reached by escalator hisses with expectancy, clinks of life. There's a hatch with a sign marked, Information, tell us more. Little ledge tilts out from it, questioningly. Morris Hearn and Charlie Redmond sit on a bench a few yards west of the hatch. They are in their low fifties. The years are rolling out like tide now. There is old weather on their faces, on the hard lines of their jaws, on their chaotic mouths. But they retain just about a rakish air. Now, in precise tandem, they turn their faces to the hatch marked Information. You want to... uh, (coughs) You want to hop back there, Charlie, have another word, see about this next boat that's due in? Yeah, but the same lad is still on, Morris. The lad with the bitter face on him. He's not a talker, Moss. Try him, Charlie. Charlie Redmond rises up from the bench in a bundle of sighs. He unfolds his long bones. He approaches the hatch. He's lame. Drags the right peg in a soft, brushing motion with practised ease. Throws his elbows onto the counter. His aura is of... Brassy menace. He wears a a corner boy's grimace. His Spanish pronunciation is very much from the north side of Cork City. (coughs) Hola y buenas noches, he says. Waits it out for a long beat, looks over his shoulder, calls back to Morris. No response, Moss. Bitter face on him still. Morris shakes his head sadly. I fucking hate ignorance, he says. Charlie tries again. Hola, excuse me, trying to find out about this next boat coming in, this boat from Tangier, are going out. Silence, a gesture. Charlie looks back to his friend and mimics the informacionista's shrug. All I'm getting here is the shoulders, Morris. Habla inglés is what you say to him, Charlie. Charlie throws up his hands and shuffles back to the bench. Habla my hole, he says. All he's doing is give me the shoulders, give me the eyes. Facing him like a bad marriage, Morris says. Now he turns sharply and screeches at the hatch. Lose the fucking face! Now humorously grins. 
Morris Hearn's jaunty, crooked smile will appear with frequency. His left eye is smeared and dead, the other oddly bewitched, as though at an excessive life for balance. He wears a shabby suit, an open-neck black shirt, white runners and a derby hat perched high in the back of his head. Dudish, at one time, certainly. Past it now. You've him told, Morris, you've manners put on the boy. Charlie Redmond. The face somehow has an antique look. Like a court player's medieval. A man who'd strum his lute for you. In some meadow-sweet lair. Hot, adulterous eyes and again a shabby suit, but dapper shoes and a rusted orange tone, a pair of suede-finished creepers that whisper of brothels, also a handsome green corduroy necktie, also stomach trouble, bags like graves beneath his eyes, and soul trouble. All the years we've been coming here, Charlie, I know it, yeah. You think we'd have the lingo got? Slow learners, Morris. Tell me about it, poor little Morris Arn from Toker, down the back of the class, minding the coats. I do have the odd word, I suppose, Morris. Thinking on, I mean, lingo-wise. Hit me up, Charlie. Supermarcado. <laughs> what's, what's that when it's at home? Tesco. <laughs> I have a few I remember, actually, like... Uh, Garion. Go where? Garion. From a time I spent in Cadiz. Did I ever tell you one time, Charlie, I was in love with an older lady in Cadiz? I'd nearly have remembered, Morris. We used to make love all night, Charles. You were younger then, Moss. Do you know what she'd do for me in the mornings? I'm all ears, Morris. She'd feed me sparrows, Charlie. They'd fucking ate anything, wouldn't they, this crowd? <laughs> Gory on, Morris says. Sparrow. If it's not nailed down, Charlie says, they'll fucking eat it. Into the frying pan, down the gullet. Must be classic greasy first thing, Morris. A little sparrow. Greasy like John Travolta. Not a lot of eating on them bones, it has to be said. Personally speaking, Morris, my arse isn't right since the octopus we ate in Malaga. Saying hello to you, Charlie. Tis ya. And of course the octopus wasn't worse than Malaga. No, it wasn't. Not by a long shot, boy. <laughs> and they go on like that for 240 pages. <laughs> it, was, it was a cinch, you know, once they started. Just Should we just do that all night instead? Yeah. Just off read the, us the whole thing. Went. Read yeah. us the whole thing. Um, Coming back to what you said just in, in your opener there then, this Spain book. Yeah. I just want to ask you a bit more about that. Why did there have to be a Spain book? I don't know. It's, it's kind of... I often think in terms of research for a novel, um, the very best research is the stuff you don't realise as research for a novel at the time. And just me going and kind of mooching around these little Andalusian cities for weeks and uh, unending and, and, and just kind of soaking up some of the atmosphere of the places. And they used to... Um, there's something about Spanish cities, especially in the south, that reminded me of growing up in Ireland in, in, in the 70s. The, the Catholicism, basically, on the air, you know. Mm. Um, something always reminded me of childhood cities in Ireland. And it's still more evident in Spain than it would be in Ireland now. Mm. That kind of... You still see little nuns everywhere around the place. <laughs> you don't in Ireland anywhere. Oh, it's kind of nice now, a little nun. But, um, <laughs> and, and somehow, it's just... But I guess Morris and Charlie, you see... I, I don't suffer from uh, a lack of ideas for things, but my big problem often is it's too much uh, imagination. Too many ideas start coming. And, oh, this is, and someone said once, and it's very true, the, the greatest enemy of a good idea is, is a better idea suddenly comes along and you switch and start doing something new. And I'm like that all the time. New characters keep presenting themselves. How do you rein it in then? What's yeah. the, what, how, well, what's what, the you, you have to then? pay attention to the characters who are especially vivid 
and vivacious and who are full of life. And I kind of, Morris and Charlie started showing up in everything. Like they started showing up first in short stories. Mm-hmm. Like if a short story was going wonky on me, these two cork gangsters would kind of show up. And, and they would immediately have the same effect. They'd fucking ruin the short story, you know? <laughs> because they're big, belligerent, kind of loud. They have a lot to say for themselves. And then I eventually realized, oh God, I have to give them their own thing. I have to figure out who they are. Um, and I tried it as a play script. And for about two or three weeks, I was writing a lot of Morris and Charlie talk. And then I figured out, you know what? I really, I really need to find out who these two are. And I knew then I kind of needed the space and the air of a novel mm. to properly yeah. explain themselves. And like, what you do, I guess, at the start of a novel is you give yourself a problem, you know? You give yourself a problem and you see if you can solve it over the next year or however long it takes. And my big problem, I knew these were kind of bad men, you know, desperate characters and awful messers. And, and they'd been involved in violent stuff and terrible stuff and they were really unreliable. And my big problem was I have to make the reader love them, you know? I have to make the reader really feel for these two. Uh, and, and that was the, the problem I set myself at yes. the start of the book. I mean, you make it sound like you have no agency in these men coming into yeah. your life. Like, what's that? Are you, do, do you feel they're... You, I think you've said somewhere oh that yeah. you feel they're in the room with you. Oh, very much so with these what's two, yeah. And to it was like to an uncomfortable degree. Mm. Um, are they in the room now? Are they here? They, they they're are. Here. They're in here. But it was... Um, I'm, I'm always very interested in the way people hold themselves physically and the way people carry themselves. And very often with Irish people, when you watch Irish people and their stature, right, and how they carry themselves, it's kind of... There's kind of a defensiveness in it. Right, and it's kind of, you know, this kind of that sort of set of the shoulders, and it comes from weather and history and so many things the way we carry ourselves. But Cork City is different. There's a kind of a natural kind of haughtiness on the air in Cork City, and a kind of a belligerence in the way people carry them, and it, that very much presented these two characters. I could see them kind of, you know, looking around and sort of, and as soon as they tar- started talking, I couldn't get them out of my head, okay. um, and it was it was actually uncomfortable and. I, I found as, 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 as soon as I started writing the novel, my sleep went to shit. Like I, I was sleeping really badly, like an hour and a half a night I was getting because I would be wrecked and I'd turn the lights out and suddenly Charlie and Morris stuff would start going on in my head. And it was around the time that the Guardian and places kept running these reports going, we've worked it out scientifically, you need eight and a half hours sleep a night <laughs> or you're dead by next Tuesday, you know? I was going, fuck, you know, I'm getting eight and a half hours a week at this stage. So I actually changed my working practices for this novel. I'm usually a morning writer and I became a night writer. I started writing it at night. Um, so Olivia would go up to, to bed with her book at 11 o'clock and I'd, I'd start into it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I was really going for it on the atmospherics. I was lighting candles and like putting cello music on in the corner and I'd have a fire going and I was writing longhand and I was just doing Morris and Charlie yeah. and it was great and th- I'd go to about five in the morning and then I'd pour a glass of red wine the size of my head um, and sip that and then I'd manage to sleep for four or five hours yeah. but I, I think it really changed the tone of the book it, it gave it a kind of a nocturnal air and it's still a comedy but I think it's, it's quite a sombre comedy you know it is all of those things I mean how much can you and I'm I'm interested in the atmosphere of of any book of this Mm. book I mean how much can you engineer that that kind of density well yeah I mean or does it come does it just come out in the character like via the characters I mean I for me if you can get the characters voices on the page everything else follows if you can get their voices you get their hearts and souls and minds following on from that and then like everything with me starts really with character um and, and, and these are slippery people, you know, these two. Um, and it's kind of... It struck me 
as I was writing it, that compa- the, the movement of the book, the motion of it, was precisely the reverse of my previous two novels, City of Bohan and Beetlebone, both of, both of which started with what looked kind of like realism in the opening pages, but both very quickly tiptoed towards kind of fantastical elements. With this, it opens up and it's presented as quite a theatrical kind of a premise, you know, but it actually moves steadily towards a kind of realism, mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. as, as mm-hmm. you move through the book. And it's, um, it's kind of something that struck me as well is that you, be- you become a little bit kinder as a writer towards your own characters as you get older, or you should do, you know? Why um, should you? Why, why should you? I, I, I ju- it's just a human thing. You, you get more relaxed in yourself as, 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 as you get older. Like, it's not insignificant as well. The characters are in their early 50s, and I recently had a significant birthday. I, I, I reached 50, <laughs> and um, it was playing on my mind mm. to a degree. Um, and one of the things as, as, as you age, and one of the great constellations, actually, is that you discover that the past is unstable. You know, the past is, a, is, is, is in motion still all the time. And things that you thought meant one thing in your life meant something completely different. Um, and I think this is very much what's happening with Morris and Charlie mm. in the book as well. They're kind of considering everything that's happened. And, and, you know, and there, there are lots of sort of unanswered questions, I think, in the book about how they got to this situation, what the whole background was. Mm. Um, we know they were both involved with the same woman mm. over, over the course of many kind of decades. Mm. Um, but, yeah, but, uh, but I definitely feel there was a kind of a kindness in my treatment of the characters that mightn't have been there if I tried this book 10 years ago. Right. I, I, might, I think I would have written a very different version of this. Mm. Well, that's something you said uh, a minute ago just about how you had to make us love them. Mm. And I just wonder why, why, do we, wh- how, why do we have to love them? Mm. Um, is that to make the book work or do no. you just mean generally yeah. that you uh, want to? Like I'm, I'm, I'm not talking in terms of likeable characters. I, no. I, I, I definitely don't think you need to have likeable characters in your fiction. But it, it, it was just to, to present that problem myself you know um how how can i kind of justify these two and and, and really warm people towards them because you know they, they, they've done dreadful things but it was um yeah it, 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 it was it was a very intense quite a quick process for me as the novel goes it was inside a year i finished and um as soon as i sent the book out the door as soon as i pressed send um to my editors one in edinburgh and one in the u.s um eight hours sleep again and i perfectly <laughs> As soon as Morris and Charlie were out of the house, you know, so I was kind of happy to see it go. Yeah. Uh, do, do you feel you'd exercise them in a sense? Do you think they'll yeah. appear? Are they still in the wings somewhere? Yeah. Or are they, they I, d- I, might, I mean, I think it's definitely possible. The book has already transitioned from short story to play to novel, and it might definitely go back into some other iteration mm. again, I think, yeah. um, in the future. So I might be fully done with them yet, but um, I kind of know them now, and I, I am very fond of them. Mm. Yeah. Uh, th- th- yeah, they're enormously winning, appealing, terrible men, uh, which <laughs> is glorious to read. Um, I mean, I, I want to just um, invoke the spirit of Beckett, actually, as others right. I know have done uh, in relation to these characters and the dialogue and so on. I mean, how heavy is that a burden, if anything, to you as an Irish writer? Yeah. And, and in ri- I think it was Alan Warner said they were an iPhone ham and clove. Yeah. Is that well, helpful yeah. or a knowing wink? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think I have... You can't have two two characters waiting for something and not have that kind of uh, <laughs> that sort of gone to steer shadow behind you it's at some level but I don't know I mean it's 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 kind of a little bit reductive to say it but I think Irish writers certainly in in, in the late 20th century struggled with two very contrary influences um, Beckett who who took everything off the page and Joyce who put everything on the page two contrary approaches and and Irish writers were kind of stuck between them I, I, I kind of always loved the kind of third way the kind of Flan O'Brien 
mischievous streak that was in Irish writing always as well. But um, I don't know. I mean, I, with Beckett, I've I've always been weirdly more interested in him in him as a character in his own right than for mm. some of the work. I, I mean, the great is it James Nolson biography of Beckett, damned to fame. Um, is highly recommended reading. He he he's um he's he's a really warm, generous character. You know, mm. a lot of the miserabilism was kind of his shtick as well. You know, he, he was apparently great fun to go drinking with, really? and it, Beckett was good crack, um, which you, you wouldn't expect. But um, <laughs> no, definitely you you can't say his shadow isn't over a story like this, sure, in, in sure. to some degree. I mean, I think for all that, the book is obviously we've just heard. Oh, but actually, there was a more significant playwright for me when I was writing it, Pinter, Harold Pinter. I okay. was thinking about a lot. Um, In what sense? I wanted to get a real kind of sense of menace on the page, and nobody does menace as well as as as, as, as Pinter has done it, um, especially in those kind of early '60s plays like The Caretaker and and The Birthday Party and stuff like that. And those were texts that were very kind of um, close close to the. Close to the <laughs> close to the desk as I, as I was writing the book. I mean, I think that, that that's that's right. There's a, there is a lot of menace, but it's almost in the stuff that isn't mentioned, that isn't avert. Yeah. Is that is that something that gets written in and then taken back out, or how do you create that kind of I sense I mean, of allu- allusion to? Yeah, I I have a thing where I tend to write long and then cut and cut and cut and cut. Um, so. I mean, it, it's a sh- relatively short novel. It's about 45,000 words, but it would have been 90 or 100,000 mm-hmm. at some point, and I just cut and cut. And I, I enjoy that, you know? I enjoy seeing how much of... Because when you're writing a novel, you're building a little machine. And what you're doing is you're trying to... How much scaffolding can I take away? And is it still standing up on the desk? And that's kind of the fun of it mm-hmm. for me. I hate the first draft mm-hmm. kind of process. I find that painful and hard and it always looks awful on the page first drafts look fucking terrible when you look at them on the page um but i love editing and i love going through it and scalpel get the scalpel out and cutting away and see what's in there um yeah and i i I was thinking a lot as well about pace as, as as i wrote the novel um i want to make some pages turn really quickly for 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 the reader so those morris and charlie kind of dialogues the reader should be horsing through those quite quickly you know and then I want to slow it mm. in other places and really make it quite dense and difficult and like in alternate chapters we go back into the past of their criminal histories and their life careers and romantic careers and all that and the tone changes quite radically mm-hmm. when it goes into the past mm-hmm. I w- like I wouldn't say the laughter disappears entirely but definitely the laughs recede a little bit will I read a I little bit say, from if that's yeah. a bit you're going to read yeah let's do that um, without, without giving any plot spoilers or anything like that a lot of the storybook of the book turns on events that happened around the end of the millennium, around December 99 and January 2000. Um, at this stage, Morris and his late wife, Cynthia, had made quite a lot of money from their illicit activities. And to wash the money, they, they, they built a scheme of houses in West Cork, in the southwest of Ireland. Unfortunately, they built it on a site that had a fairy fort. And Morris became deeply paranoid and he became convinced that he'd fallen into seriously bad luck. So I'll just read a couple of pages from from a chapter that's titled An Enchantment. This is from her shadow time. Dilly was four years old. It was the end of the century and it felt like such a strange time. It felt like everybody was saying goodbye. The early winter was cold and clear. They were living outside Bearhaven. It was raw up on the hill. He was in a serious condition. He was all stirred up and clairvoyant somehow and he wanted to fuck all around him. 
He was in the spare room, mostly. They were having a bad spell. In the mornings, he would look in on Cynthia sleeping. The way that her lips moved. Her dreams, they must have been livid. He'd look in on Dilly as she halfway slept. And when she turned, he spoke to her and it was crazy stuff. He told her there were tiny elves in her hair. On each strand of her hair, they rested and were weightless there. He said, they'll protect you if anything bad should happen to me. He was certain the bad times were coming. They had named the terrace of nine houses Ardna Cree. It hovered above the town, above the cold harbour. They could not sell the houses. The bad luck continued. They were in the last house along, number nine, and in the morning he'd sit and drink coffee from the Tangier pot and look out to the old fairy mound and it was breathing. He was sure of it. It was a vivid winter and bright and treeless up there. The birds showed, even in the hard season, against the bareness and the rocks, a string of bright finches across the grey in a flit like jewels of red and gold, and it was beautiful and he could take it no more. He'd make words on his lips and not know where they came from. He started to see the sky as a kind of membrane. His head felt like it was the size of the planet. The sky was just a casing for his pulsing brain and it was too thin. He might explode like a star. The winter days were bright and slow. They were off most of the drugs. The hours were heavy and cumbersome and moved by like old horses. He fucked a crusty girl in Bantry, thinking it would take the rage out of him. The rage intensified. When he found his mother in the evenings, she'd ask how things were going, and there was motherly insinuation to the question, Are you not so great in yourself, Morris? He said it was difficult to say. In the car, one Sunday morning, he performed a sex act on a bar girl he knew from Bearhaven. He thought it might wipe the brain for him. It did not wipe no fucking brain. Instead, a curious image came to him. It was the image of Gulliver, pinned to the earth. The skin stretched out in a thousand sharp pulls and tacked. His wife, his child, his mother, his dead father, his crimes and addictions, his enemies and worse, his friends, his debtors, his sleepless nights, his violence, his jealousy, his hatred, his insane fucking lust, his wants, his eight empty houses, his victims, his unnameable fears, and the hammering of his heart in the dark, and all the danger that moved through the night, and all of his ghosts and all that his ghosts demanded from him, and the places he had been and longed for again, and the great pools of silence in the bone hills above. What lives inside those fucking hills? And the solitude he so badly craved, and the peace he so needed, and the love he so needed, and he was just a young man still in essentials. He was really very young, but yes, he was pinned to the fucking earth all right. And oh God, how much he wanted to go. And after that, we go back to the ferry terminal for light relief. <laughs> I mean, but it, it's what I love about writing. Like, it, it's funny actually. If I if I see articles or reviews about my books, or they very often say dark and the darkness and stuff like that, which is always an amazement to me. I th- I think I write out now comedies, you know. <laughs> and then sometimes I read a passage like that and go, "Oh right, I see, I see, I see where they're going." But I think generally I do write comedy of a very kind of inky black form, but. It's very attractive to me as a writer because I think, you know, what's a laugh? A laugh is a physical reaction. You know, when you get a laugh, you've opened the reader physically. And, when the re- and you've made the reader vulnerable t- 
to your ambitions on the page. Mm. And that's when you can really go in and twist the knife, you know, and really make them feel. Um, mm. The laughter opens everything up, you know, emotionally, and you can really kind of get stuck in. In fact, point. I wanted to ask you about that. I remember seeing you read a story called A Cruelty here in oh Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic story that I highly commend to you. Um, and there's a bit, and everyone was laughing their heads off, and then there's a bit that's just an absolute oh turn yeah. where it becomes really, yeah. really horrible. Yeah. And how do you do that in so few work? Because it is a, there's such a spareness yeah. to the... It's often a jolt to me as well, you know. Um, and I, I, I guess when I'm, when I'm writing anything, whether it's a story or a novel or a script or whatever it is, what I'm always trying to do is I'm trying to subvert readerly expectation. You know, I, 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 you know, I'm trying to misdirect often. Um, and I kind of often have the ambition where I want somebody who's reading the book or watching this or whatever it is that, that I've written um, to kind of chuckle happily all the way through and at the end go, oh, what the fuck was I, what, what, what what, was I laughing at, you know? Because it, but it is, it, it's manipulation, you know? Um, but um, like my natural tendency is to kind of, is to write in a comic mode because I think comedy... Is, is, is the most um, true mode of storytelling to the way we get through life as, uh, as people, you know? Um, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry mm. kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And it, it, it always... Irish funerals are, are, are very instructive in this regard. Like, if you go to an Irish funeral and stand outside the dead house, all it is is people making jokes and wisecracks um, because we can't deal with reality, you know? Can't deal with the void the view of the void that's been opened up so we kind of laugh our way through and I think that's what comedy is mm. there's, the, there's a great quote from I don't know was it Saul Bellow or someone who said laughter in the dark you know that, mm. that, that's a great mode of sto- storytelling yeah. for the novelist or the story writer or whatever it is it's something you say in the book of uh, Morris and Charlie that their talk is kind of a shield against yeah. any feeling yeah, yeah, but yeah. that feels like quite a rich place to write from because you're kind of having to conceal a lot more than you can show in, yeah. a, in a sense yeah it's speaking. kind of you know, talk, um, and, and, you know, Irish people love to talk, and, and we're, um, we're good at it, mellifluous motherfuckers, you know, and um, love the sounds of our own voices, and we say very little, often, you know, <laughs> and it's kind of, and where you find fiction, and where you find stories, and where you find drama, is in what's not quite been said, in what's just under the kind of, the surface of all this wonderful talk that's going on and it can take an awful long time to figure out what an Irish conversation meant you know about 15 years before you realise the actual intention and something that was said to you Um, very slippery Um, but at the same time very you know very very kind of really the the, the cards are still held very close Mm. to the chest often emotionally and stuff like that where you don't quite go into it um, dance around it with all this Mm. talk Um, but yeah that, that line which comes quite early that their talk is a shield against feeling is, is very much one of the key, the key mm, lines notions, in the book, yeah. I think. Yeah. I want to move, move away and talk a little bit about the kind of the book, this shape of the book here, this kind of vehicle for the characters that you've, you've, mm. you've told us about, really. When does that come? So the characters come first. Yeah. And because you work across lots of forms and the story and so on, how, how then does this pseudo-crime book with a big emotional crushing, th- yeah. wh- where does that come yeah. from? A, a, a weird little poetical gangster novel. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of... I, I, I tend when I begin something to have a very, very, very strong sense of the opening and the beginning. And I do tend to have a quite, quite well sketched in sense of how it's going to end. Um, but I have nothing in between, you know, and I don't want anything in between. There has to be kind of discovery for me as I go along through it. I have to be um, at a very fundamental level. I, I want to give myself a good time, you know. I, I, I always remind myself, you know, 
you're not out digging the roads you're not down a coal mine you know you're in your little shed out in County Sligo making up characters and words you should be having a ball doing this you know it's a very privileged thing to be able to spend your your your, your life doing and I've been very lucky with, with my writing career since I published my first book of stories 12 years ago I've been able to get by doing nothing else you know just writing writing the, the stories and the novels and so forth so I'm always trying to entertain myself on the very on the basis of a very simple equation that if I'm if I'm not having a good time at this end of the process beloved reader our audience member isn't going to be having a good time at the far end of the process so I'm trying to entertain myself mm-hmm. all the time um, but generally I know very little about 90% of, 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 of the book or the story what it's going to be mm-hmm. there has to be a daily thing where I go in or a nightly thing with this book mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of and I'm, I'm kind of seeing it image by image or hearing it really yeah. like it I think prose fiction is a kind of it's kind of a musical form in some ways and I remember reading a very a thing that amazed me when I was kind of in my kind of starting to be serious about writing in my kind of mid-twenties um, and I was a huge Don DeLillo kind of boy fan at the time and reading an interview with DeLillo where he said I'm really not that interested in um, the meaning of a sentence I'm just interested in the sound of it that's what I'm looking for the melody of it and the rhythm of it on the page and I, I just follow that and that was amazing to me I thought yeah that's absolutely the way I want to work um, and you can also it, it, it's almost musical you just you let sound and rhythm of the prose dictate the story and you just go with that and this definitely has a kind of a, a melancholy tune to it this mm-hmm. book but a lot of the early struggle with a novel is finding its music and finding its tone and its rhythm and where that's going to bring you um, mm-hmm. And in that sense, that this book has two different musics, as you've just it said. It's not yeah. just the one big kind yeah. of, you know, it's quite... It's, it's Cork and mm. Spain. Um, yeah. But it's, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wonderful Irish um, filmmaker called Bob Quinn, and I urge you all to seek out his films, go to his website. Great radical filmmaker working in the west of Ireland from the early 70s up to the present day. He's kind of in his 80s now, but he's still going. And he made a great show in um, a series for RTE television in the early 80s and it was about, it's called Atlantean, and you can buy the DVDs. And it's, um, I've talked to so many writers and artists who remember it, and it's a huge influence. And it's about Iberian and North African influences on the west of Ireland, because that's such an ancient trade route. And for the west of Ireland, like, it, was, it, it was quicker to get to Spain than it was to get to England, because you could go down on a boat you know, yeah. and bring stuff up. And it was, it, like, it's this kind of trade route that went on for hundreds and thousands of years. And at one point, Morris and Charlie start to reminisce about how they're in this line of kind of pirates, essentially, that, that came up and down. And it's a, it was an interesting feed to bring into it, mm-hmm. that kind of influence, mm-hmm. which is very strongly pronounced in the West of Ireland still, mm-hmm. you know, just yeah, in places like yeah. Spanish arts in Galway. And, yeah. and, and even, you know, there's a certain type of Irish farmer you find in a West of Ireland field who looks kind of Spanish or Portuguese or something, you know, yeah. dark skinned and kind yeah, of yeah. all yeah. of that. And, yeah. and music in the Shannon singing yeah. in the West of Ireland, it, it could almost sound like Morocco mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. places, you know, yeah. and it's yeah. kind of almost a far-fetched kind of influence to bring in but there's something there as well mm. um and sorry no, go on go on no, I, I'm, I am keen to ask you about the women as well as the oh men yeah. just yeah, because yeah. we've got two kind of two fierce well more than two yeah. but i want to focus on the two main ones and yeah. and and in this masculine world that you've, yeah. you've built very kind of lucrative cd you know debased world yeah. what what was it like to write them how do you, yeah. do you follow them really the late cynthia morris's wife who was also charlie's lover comes into it in the second half of the book, the, the women come into it much more. And Dilly, um, um, who I love, the, the kind of the, the, the young girl who's gone missing, 
who's run off to Spain with the Krusties, essentially. I, fi I find actually what a, a lot of I've been doing since I started talking about this book is explaining the concept of Krusties to millennials. You know, <laughs> I'd say like they have dreadlocks and dogs and ropes and they're still down in Spain. That's where you find them. But it's, um, yeah, the, the, the tone or music of the book shifts radically, I think, when the women come, in, come into it. And it becomes a kind of, um, I don't know how, but some sort of, especially with Dilly, the younger woman, a very elegiacal note comes into it. And I, I used, like, I, just, I might finish on a little bit from Dilly in a, in a, in a while, but um, when I was kind of 18 and 19, that kind of age I describe her in the book is, I was very kind of uh, spacer-like, but really attuned to nature kind of stuff and wandering around in West Cork and places like this. And Dilly is very tuned into natural phenomenon and natural, natural kind of music that comes out of the fields and out of the hills and out, out of the sea especially and tunes into that but it's um, yeah I, 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 I was kind of they were, they were Dilly was really hard to write um, because I was worried about her how so? I, I, I didn't know how she was doing what she you know um, how, how do you get there when that's happening then how do you how do you make, get past it I suppose if, yeah. it's, if someone's hard to write I, I, I don't know it, 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 it's I get I, my my fallback always is I get them talking on the page and hear what they're saying and what they're not saying but Dilly was difficult but it's she, the, her parts of the book now are kind of my favourite parts of the book I think really mm. at this point yeah. it's interesting to hear you talk about it it's, it sort of makes it sound like you know Star Wars as a space opera and everyone's got their own light motifs it's a bit yeah. like that they've all got their own kind of atmospheres and, yeah. and movements I mean I want to kind of bring everyone else in very shortly um, but I did want to ask you just a little bit more about place and I know that you've, you, 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 you know, plays a huge you know, kind of role in your work, but that kind of sense of different places holding different sadnesses. And I wonder if you could yeah. just say, because this, this book's got a really queasy kind of confounding way of yeah. shifting us between different places. And I just would love to hear a little bit more about, about yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember very early in my kind of sort of publishing career one day in a library in Kilkenny giving a reading and, and been asked the question, where does the work coming from? And I had this very eloquent answer about dialogue and Hiberno-English and blah, blah, blah. And as I, as I was very eloquently delivering it, I was saying to myself, this is complete bollocks. This isn't <laughs> how, I, how I write at all. Because it always, it actually always starts for me with a place. It, it, it's always the place that that's the first thing and, and the feeling that a place kind of gives off. And I think all creative people, be they writers or musicians or painters or artists of any type, it nearly always starts with some sort of atmosphere or feeling you get from a place and you try to make something in response to that place. And then this, place, this book has two places. It has Cork and Spain and, and, and both places that were very special to me. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I often think of um, the great uh, County Kerry philosopher John Murray Arty, who's sadly, sadly no longer with us. But he, he always said, you know, you, ha you have happy feels and you have sad feels, you know. And you'd walk across a field somewhere in the west of Ireland and suddenly you're elated. And you're just, oh. And you're carrying yourself differently and you're in wonderful form. And you go across another field, you go, fuck. You know, you're down like that and you're really dragging along. And he said, those feelings aren't in you at all. They're in the field, you know. You know, human feeling doesn't just reside in humans. It leaves its reverberations behind in our places and on our street corners and in our buildings. And... Um, that's 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 what I respond to as a writer. Um, I tune into that, and and, and that's that's it, everything starts with the place for me. Lovely. Okay, I think we'd love to have some questions and comments from everyone here. Um, we have got a microphone, so if you just wait for it, that would be lovely. Has anyone got a question to kick us off? 
got one here. Thank you. Hello. Um, Hi. It was really interesting to hear you talking about how important music is to your writing and how important comedy is to your writing. And you clearly think a lot about the craft of it as well. And, and both in comedy and music, musicians and or stand-ups have an audience reaction that can tell them whether they've been successful yeah. in, their, in their rhythms and their sounds and all that. How do you know yeah. when you've got all these readers who are just reading? Yeah. Like, do it, how do you know when I know, you know that's a really, really interesting question, yeah, because there's no immediate kind yeah. of response. And, you know, sometimes you write something at 11 o'clock in the morning and think it's godsend genius. And you look at it at five that afternoon and go, oh, fuck, you know, it's not, you know, um, your own mood um, changes so much when it comes to your work. And it's, it's, it's just a kind of brutal discipline to go through your work in every mood imaginable and hundreds of times and if it still sounds good and if if it still seems to click you know if there's a, 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 a sentence a sentence that works in prose fiction there's almost a click there's almost a and I do a thing where early on in a project I've, I'll, I'll hit on a sentence where I go oh yeah that's it that's, that's the music of this one and I'll write it down and I'll stick it over my desk and I use it kind of like a tuning fork on those days where it's not going well and it's slow, I'll go, where's my tuna fork? And it's ding, that's it. <laughs> that's the book there, that kind of sentence. And, and that <laughs> Yeah, but it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's really interesting then when you start, when a book comes out and you start to do um, readings and, and, and people react to in places that you weren't expecting to get the laugh or to get the tears or what, what, whatever it is. You know, and it's, it's always a surprise. But it's, um, you know, I mean, I... I, I I, f- I very firmly believe that the reader finishes the book. The writer doesn't finish the book. The reader finishes the story or finishes the book. Um, and I do have the reader very much in mind, as I write. Some writers say they don't at all, and, and that would kind of make them self-conscious or something, but I, I, I do. Um, and it, it's kind of... You know, you, you have an ideal reader in mind, someone who has, like, incredible taste and a brilliant sense of humour, so it's yourself, <laughs> essentially. You know, you write the books that you'd want to find in, 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 in the bookstores. So it's... Um, yeah, but, but a very critical thing for me is those little sentences that like, come earlier on that I can kind of use as a tuning fork for the whole thing. Thanks. Apparently, um, when people first heard Proofrock, T.S. Eliot reads Proofrock, which is just, I think, really sad, they all laughed their yeah. heads off in the recording. You can hear it. Um, thank you. Uh, hello. I, I read your Peter poem. Yeah. I haven't read this one, yeah. and I thought it was terrific. Thank you. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I immediately thought of um, well waiting for God. Oh, actually, that's sort of waiting sense of waiting. Okay. I, I thought of Flann O'Brien. Yeah. And I thought of Martin McDonough with the humour and the dialogue. Right. But but what what struck me, and I hope this isn't an intrusive sort of question, but it, it, even though there was so much humour in it and so much, the the dialogue is so brilliant. My the, at the end I felt. Uh, the anxiety, just anxiety, and I wondered how close to despair or darkness these, this writing brings you sometimes. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Well, you know, I mean, it's a very interesting question, why do you write, you know? Yeah. And you don't write because you're happy or because everything is going wonderfully, you know? You write out of anxiety and you write out of grief and you write out of loss and you write out of near madness, you know? Um, Somebody said, I think Iris Murdoch said, happiness, happiness writes white. It doesn't show up on the page. Um, and it's the least interesting topic imaginably. But I think anxiety is very interesting. You mentioned that. Because I, I would think possibly the, the, the main 
propelling force that sends me to my desk in the, in, in the morning is anxiety, you know? Uh, that's why I write. Um, and it's kind of... Like, it, it, it's weird, your style as a writer, your prose style, there's nothing mysterious about it. It's merely a very direct projection of your personality. Um, my person... And after a while has passed in life, there isn't much you can do about your personality, really. My personality is 95% hysterical nervous energy right fucking rattling okay and that's what comes out in the page and if i if i can sense that i know i'm kind of doing it right to some degree um but you're you're absolutely right beetlebone um i would say if if it's about a single thing it's about the anxiety of the creative life um i knew i had that in my own life and i knew that's how i could make a portrait of john lennon because i i'm I'm sure all writers and artists share that kind of sense of, of of anxiety thank you that's a great question thanks to follow on briefly from that question, how much that's an, in, an internal going outwards anxiety, how much does a, this very anxious time that we're experiencing politically kind of... Diff- does that, has that changed the, uh, the mode of your work? or? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I mean, sometimes you, 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 know, you look at the, the newspapers or, or, or the TV every day and you think, Jesus, what I'm doing seems is, is completely, you know, with the world in such a crazy situation. It's, and I'm just going to make up my little characters and stories. Um, that, you know, shouldn't I be, you know, out on the streets protesting or, or whatever, with everyone else? But, but I think, no, I, I, I get past that and go, right, you know, I, I'm good for one thing in life, really, which is go and, and, and write these stories, and that's what I have to do. But um, I sometimes think then, you know, I'm not a political writer in any way, but then I think everything you write is, is political in some sense. And, mm-hmm. you know, you step out of bed in the morning and, and breathe the air, and it's political in some sense. So it feeds in in ways that are kind of mysterious to me, I guess. Mm-hmm. Any other? We've got a question here, and we've got a couple at the back, quite a few, so we'll go here and then we'll rush over there. Thank you all. Do you, can you wait for the mic? Just pop your hand up so we can see. Yep, lovely. Yes, you said that you um, know you have a pretty good idea of how you want to start and how it might finish. Yeah. What interests me is the bit in the middle, because I think, are you an adventurer then? Are you going out exploring? Yeah. <laughs> you know, do you know... I'm an adventurer of inner space. <laughs> um, yeah. no, you, you're having to surrender something, are you? Yeah, yeah, actually, do you know what you're doing in a way? I think it, often writing is you're, you're trying to get out of the way of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like fiction doesn't come from the front of the brain. Our drama. It comes from the subconscious. It comes from the back of the mind. Like the only thing writing is close to is dreaming. Um, it comes from the same place. It comes from the back of the mind. And when you think about it, you know, when we dream, we're all brilliant storytellers. You know, these crazy scenes present themselves with their own dream logic. The dialogue is perfect, unimprovable. Then we wake up in the morning and we can't do it, you know. And as a writer, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to keep those channels open and go directly to that kind of dreamy place. In the mor- That's why I'm usually a morning writer. Before I've given myself the chance to wake up even, I'll get to the desk where you're still kind of puddled in that dream melt and you can just go into it. But it, it is sometimes a case of getting yourself out of the way of it and just leaving those channels open um, and, and going into it. But it, it, when it's going well, it seems like discovery and it seems like you're an adventurer. But it, it, very often it doesn't seem to be going well. I mean, I go in to the desk, I go there seven mornings a week for three or four hours and I'd say it seems to be going well maybe one or two days a week. Most days it feels like, you know, you just sat there and nothing is really moving. But then about once a week or twice a week, you get a day for just maybe half an hour, the hand feels guided. 
as it moves across the page. But you realise that's not the writing day. The writing day or the day you're sitting there, ugh, just mm. kind of slowly. And, and there's no shortcut. You have, to, you have to do that. You have to wait it out. And you have to be patient. Um, and I don't know if I can articulate it very well, but there is something about getting out of the way of yourself and, uh, and leaving the work become its own thing. Mm-hmm. But you call it a push-pull, I'm uh, sorry? We call it, sometimes people talk about push-pull. Yeah, I, 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 no, I think that's very accurate as well to the, to, to, yeah. to the process, but it's kind of, yeah, it's... Um, I, I, what I try to do as well is... is, is um, I try to remember to concentrate on what I'm good at, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and the bits in the books that I work hardest at, at, I think, read the easiest, like the dialogue and the stretches of dialogue and stuff like that. I go through those 50 and 60 and 70 times in drafts and I, you know, and I perform them aloud with a script in hand and a pen um, to get them. I believe if, you, if you're very good at something, you can be great at it if, if you have enough discipline and, 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 and go to it. And I mean, you know, I, it's weird, um, haven't had my recent significant birthday, you think back over your life and I think of myself when I was starting to write in a serious way in my 20s, you know, in my mid-20s and I was an absolute zealot for literature, capital L. This is the most important thing in the world I really believed in it in an almost religious fanatical kind of a way I've I relaxed a bit about it <laughs> since then but I still do believe it's, it's, it's incredibly important um, and, and, I, and you know I know you have to give a lot to it um, you know it's, it's not always a pleasant experience to go into the room in the morning when you say as a writer you're going into work what you mean is you're about to crawl into your own nerves and, and, and play with what you find in there but, um, but the, the good days are worth a lot you know Thank you. Thank you very much. I think we need to take a couple from up here. Um, if that's a way, we've three up there. If we try and keep them quite short, we'll try and fit you all in if that's all right. Maybe this, this person here first, with their hand up. Hello. Oh, yeah. Sean. I just wanted to ask you about the, something that strikes me as a boring sign of writing. <laughs> it's research. I mean, you've talked about two places you probably know quite well, mm. and you talk about a very visceral. Um, Imaginative writing. Yeah. Do, do you ever get um, bogged down in research or facts? Does it yeah. matter? <laughs> I I, I, I kind of skimp on research. I think really, um, in terms of what people would consider traditional kind of research for a novel, I fi- if I find myself doing that, I, I I realize it's really procrastination. It's a way of not writing. Um, I tend to do kind of research after the fact, as in I will write something and then I might kind of Google it to see if it's feasible. You know, um, but uh, but I do I, I do very much believe in that thing where it's uh, it's the stuff you don't realise is research. Um, like my, my very first job in the late eighties was as an old fashioned cub reporter on a local newspaper in Limerick City, which was going to courts and going to council meetings and all that. Um, and all that stuff came out in my first novel that I wrote, sort of sixteen, seventeen years later, City of Bohan, a portrait of a small city. And I had no idea that I was researching a novel. 16, 17 years previously, you know. Um, and and that, that's the way it tends to go for me. If I find myself in, in, in libraries poring over books and stuff, I think it's, it's generally not a good sign for the work. It's, it's generally an act of procrastination rather than anything that's going to be valuable to the work. Thanks. And we've got two more there. We'll go to those two. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. Uh, I absolutely adore this novel. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I love it even more now I've heard you reading from it. But Keep, tell ad- me more. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to admit that I was itching for Peggy to ask you about the female characters, and it yeah. struck me 
that as you said you wondered how you could make the reader love the men yeah you start loving the men when the women's voices come um, in very perhaps. true maybe you so start seeing the men from the from a women's perspective and that's when you start falling in love with them maybe an observation rather than a question i, I i'm going to i'm going to take that comment and start using it myself as if i've <laughs> as if i've come up with myself no i think that's very true i think we see them more in the round when 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 they're described from from outside and and uh, i think without giving too much away there's a, there's a scene later on when they Charlie and Morris both have crack-ups at the same time and end up in the same mental hospital in beds alongside each other. Um, and by that stage, Dilly comes to visit and, and, and it's kind of told from her point of view. And I think that's kind of a moment in the book where we kind of really, where I, where I, where I, kind, of, where I kind of win, you know, where I, where I, where I, where I earn the reader's kind of, uh, kind of feeling for them. But, but yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good perceptive comment. Thanks. Cheers. I think we'll just take this one as the last question because we're going to end on a wee reading, so we'll thank you all for your questions. That was great. Hi, you spoke, Hi, yeah. um, you've spoken about Charlie and Morris and how they came in previous guises yeah. and different forms. Did they, were they born together? Do they have to exist together? Could one exist without the other? It, that kind of stuff. Uh, absolutely, they came as a double act and, and uh, have always been this kind of um, double act. Um, and I, I, I tend to end up writing double acts a lot. In the previous novel, Beetleborn, it was John and his Irish driver, Cornelius, were very much a double act. And I, I kind of, I see it coming now miles off as I start to write something. Oh, God, no, not another double act, you know. But there's just something very attractive to me in writing dialogues, in writing two-hander dialogues. Uh, just a natural kind of musicality comes into it when you do so. Um, and also you, the comedy. You can, you can play out the comedy uh, and stuff like that. But yeah, they, 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 they were never separate entities really they were always a, they were always a tag team yeah. will we have okay. a wee final reading I'm going to just, just uh, we've been talking about Dilly a little bit so I'm just going to read um, this is the moment when Dilly actually runs away to Spain and she's about to leave Cork and go off I'll just read a half page to, to, to finish off she left the place in her mother's battered sab she drove out the sea road a heron was the sentry to the water's shallows. It watched for movement across the fields of dull sea light. It stood perfectly still and priestly and turned its head by a clockwork nidge mechanically. Her heart was chaotic, her heart it was breaking. The peninsula ran its flank along the line of the coast road. The mountain absorbed the evening light and glowed morbidly. A roadside grotto showed the blue virgin for the souls of the vehicular dead. By ten, the moon was visible and drew her strangely. A vivid, late summer moon. Xantic was the word moon. She stopped the car and buzzed the window to hear the breath of sea. A strimmer vexed late in a high field. Somewhere too, the vixen screamed. The ribs of the sea, the last of the evening sun, made bone-white marks. The hills, for their part, vibrated royally. It was close tonight and also quiet again. The stars appeared, all at once, a canopy of stars, clasped by tidy neutron bridges, each star an atom's core. In new starlight, she drove across the lower flanks of Miskish Mountain. How fine it would be! Don't we all sometimes think to steal away into the sky and night to be lifted up by those soft hands? As she drove, Dilly looked back just once and let her lips move just once, just to say goodbye. Thank you.
this is what you're all looking for when you come and join us in the bookshop. Um, I hope you will come and join us. Um, I'd like to just thank you all very much for coming tonight and for your questions and engagement and ask you, of course, to join me in thanking Kevin Berry. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.